0: Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm, that's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm, click the support button, and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you, we see you, and we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film The Palm Beach Story from 1942 with my wonderful guest, Daniel Strauss. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and I have my guest, Daniel Strauss, here today. Hi, Daniel.
1: Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me back on the show.
0: We discussed the film, The Palm Beach Story from 1942. Daniel, I have been dying to hear your thoughts on it. What are your thoughts?
1: I was entertained by this movie. I did not love this movie but I found this movie for the most part to be charming and an entertaining watch.
0: Delightful, charming, entertaining, all great words. I would use those words. Those are the words, exactly. Um, so I chose this film because first of all, on this podcast, we have not talked about Preston Sturgis, who is like a prolific comedy writer from the 1940s. So I had to pick a Preston Sturgis film. And as we all know, people who listen to this podcast, I freaking love Barbara Stanwyck. I love her so much that we've talked about her a lot. So we couldn't watch the Lady Eve, which I think is maybe my favorite Preston Sturgis film. So I had to pick a film that was like a good entry point into the Preston Sturgis world. Um, I could have picked Sullivan's travels as his number one, like ranked film, but I have a confession to make. I fell asleep during it. So I have not Mm. seen it. I know that makes me a terrible person. I promise I'll watch it. I'm sure it's great. I was just really sleepy that day. I rented it and I, and I, I fell asleep. I rented (laughs) it from the library. It was a DVD. Anyway. So, so, I do need to watch that. I apologize. Maybe we should have watched that instead of this, but I, I think this film is fun. And we also have not talked about Claudette Colbert. So I was like, oh, what a great opportunity to do that. And she's at her colbert in this. So those are the reasons that I chose this film. Let's just get into it. So this film, the Palm Beach story. Oh, boy, is it zany. And it's also very, very clever, very quick-witted. Um, but it's also chaotic. So this film is bananas. It starts with a scene that will make no sense throughout the entire film until the very end. Um, they're playing like the William Tell Overture. I think that's the William Tell Overture. It, they're playing that song. Yes, um, yes, definitely
1: it
0: is. To crazy things that are happening and then freeze frames while they're showing us the credits. So we see like a maid screaming and a shadow behind her, freeze frame. And then we see like, Joel McRae getting into a taxi freeze frame and then we see like there's like a woman in a closet and it's Claudette Colbert and she's got like she's got a scarf around her face someone shoved her in a closet and then you you see the maid surprised again and fainting again and Claudette Colbert is running out in a wedding dress but then we also see that they, she has a twin that's in a closet who's kicking her way out of the closet and then you see her and Joel McRae at the altar, getting married, just like rushing up. They were late. The priest was like, where is everybody? The church is packed. They roll up, they get married. And then we get the the title card of, and they lived happily ever after. And then we get the second title card of, or did they? Question mark, that's great. And then we see the years from 1937 to 1942. 1942 is our present day. Uh, we see that they live in a Park Avenue apartment and we learn through people that are trying to buy the apartment that this couple is back in their rent. They can't pay for a maid service. And clearly the, the lady doesn't clean because, you know, if she had cleaned, then, you know, then it wouldn't be dirty from them not having the maid service. But we see Claudette Colbert. She is gorgeous. And we find out her husband, Joel McCrae, is an inventor. Also, he's a really dumb inventor, which I actually wanna get into. His idea is the worst idea I've ever heard it's in my life. a horrible
1: idea. It's a really awful idea.
0: What a horrible idea. So her husband, the inventor, we're just gonna break down this idea really quick before we jump back into the plot <laughs> synopsis. His big idea is that he wants to build an airport above a city over like a mesh iron grate, but he has not thought of so many things. Like how will the passengers get up and down from this great above the city. So many things not thought of.
1: It smacks of the sort of idea where like, you like the writer was, uh, or I guess it's Preston Sturgis was was like, maybe in like 60, 70 years, they'll have something like this. And people will look back on this movie and be like, wow. It's like when you watch like 2001 and you're like, oh my God, they're using iPads, you know? Except it's like the worst, most ridiculous, stupidest idea that could never there's no no feasible reason anybody would ever like we already have planes Yes. why do we need planes on strings with a giant like it's just the worst and then if you're in the city
0: you lose the sky you there would just be like rows of planes above your head and then again he had not accounted for passengers getting on these planes
1: he clearly thought it was some sort of profound idea that like like people would look back on and be like, wow, they kind of predicted bad airports, you know?
0: Well, it's funny. We're going to get into Preston Sturges later, but he was an inventor and he invented several things that commercially failed. And one thing that was a hit and we'll get to him later. That's a little Pokemon. It was, yeah, he invented Pokemon. You're correct. Pokemon. That's, mm-hmm. You got it, Daniel. I know. Always yeah. on the
1: nose. You got to catch them all. Yeah. That's what he said.
0: So yeah, that's, that's Joel McRae's terrible idea in the film, but in the film, they pretend like it's brilliant and he only needs $99,000, which I did look up. And in the past, that's like 1.6 million. Okay. He just needs 1.6 million to make a model of it. That's it. So Claudette Colbert and him are married. And they are dead broke, can't pay any bills, but she still wants to live in the height of style. And he's not going to let her work because it's, you know, the 40s. And she's like, I'm a terrible wife. I can't cook. I can't sew. I have a great idea to solve this. I am completely gorgeous and sexy and everyone loves me. I'm just going to divorce you, get a rich husband for his money, and then fund you so that you'll be happy too it's so ridiculous oh because another plot point is she could do this without divorcing him but he gets jealous every time a man hits on her and can't handle it
1: the first thing you see is her just like accidentally get 700 bucks from a weird old guy who's just like how much money do you need i'll give you anything you want but then somehow the natural conclusion from that is like I have to divorce you and marry somebody else so that I can funnel money to you through another person.
0: Oh, but I blame it on him though, because he got so jealous of the weenie king. Cause if he didn't get so, Oh, we we got to tell you about the weenie king. So When they're in the people that are touring her apartment, one of them is like a deaf older man from Texas who is the Texas weenie king who just takes a shine to her and is just a silly old character actor man and he finds out she's broke and he's like how much do you need and he takes out a giant wad of bills and he's like I'm rolling in dough and he gives her $700 and um, she kisses him on the cheek and he's like wowie. Um and then yeah so she has seven hundred dollars hot
1: diggity, hot a, diggity hot something diggity
0: that makes more story. sense because he's the sausage the weenie king mm-hmm. um there's a lot of great lines about sausage as well uh but uh she is so excited about this and she tells Joel McRae and Joel McRae is just like uh no another man can't be interested in you this is not good money bad so I think they could have remained married and she had mentioned like. Earlier, even she says later in the film, like everything I set up for you, you, you knock it down. So she could have been an asset to him. She sets up deals for him left and right. He just doesn't want to take them because he's jealous that other men are attracted to his wife and he doesn't trust her. So I blame it on him entirely, but I also would. That's very my, that's on brand for me.
1: Yeah, but it's his fault.
0: So she she could have done it that way, but he chose to be difficult. So she's like, well, I guess I have to divorce you so I can get you the money this other way. I will say they do have good sexual chemistry. They actually imply that they have sex, which is great for a film in the forties because that's not normal. So plot synopsis continued. She's like, husband, I'm leaving you to marry a rich man to give you money for this stupid, stupid project. And he's like, I'm not cool with that. And he tries to stop her from leaving him several times. It never works. She always gets out and people just want to help her. They just see Claudette Colbert and they're like, oh, I love you. How can I help you with everything? So she gets a taxi for free to the train. She gets a free train ride because a bunch of millionaires want to use her as their like quote unquote mascot. And then the millionaires behave like absolute trash and their whole train car is separated from the rest of the train because of their behavior. But that means that all of her stuff that was on that train car is gone too. So all she has are some pajamas she borrowed from one of the guys on that crazy car. She escaped the car, by the way, because they were literally shooting the windows out and behaving like absolutely insane people. Um, The white privilege was rampant. Um, The rich white male privilege was rampant. So she's in a new car. She meets this random dude in the car by stepping on his face, trying to get to the upper berth to go to sleep. You guys are getting the long clot synopsis today, and that's great. This rich man's face who she steps on just happens to be Rockefeller. I mean, not Rockefeller, Hackensacker. Um, yeah, not right. based on Rock Rockefeller at all.
1: J.D. Hackensacker, the third. Yeah. Not
0: J.D. Rockefeller, just very clear on that. So she meets this rich dude who totally falls in love with her buys her a freaking insane wardrobe, takes her on his yacht and they go to Palm beach because Palm beach is like the quote unquote, like nicer version of Reno. Cause Reno, as we talked about in our episode on the women is where you went for a divorce. You can also go to Palm beach to get a divorce. Um, those are like the two places and Palm beach is nice and it's by the water. So they go there. This character totally falls for her. He's totally also got a stick up his ass. He's got a really fun sister who is a princess. Um, who's been married a whole bunch of times. She's great. It's played by Mary Astor. I should also mention that uh, JD Hackensacker the third is played by Rudy Valley.
1: Now, Sarah, this was the part of the movie where I was confused because I was I did not remember being in this film, but apparently there was a character who came on screen. I said, Well, I guess I'm one of the actors in this movie. I didn't realize the character of Toto is played by me.
0: Daniel, I didn't even put that together. Can I just tell you? But now that you say it, I guess I see it, but I didn't think it once during the thing. So I don't know if that makes you feel good about yourself or not.
1: It does. It makes yeah. me feel oh, good. very good about myself. <laughs> but I did see him and I was like, this guy's my avatar in this film.
0: And he has no real purpose in the film. They just were like, this guy's kind of funny. Just pan to him every now and then.
1: Again, that's who I would be in this film. You're proving my point. Well,
0: if I was in this film... I would want to be Mary Astor's character, but they'd be like, no. And I'd be like, okay. And that's how that would go.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, but wait a minute. If you're, if you're dream casting yourself, I think you're allowed to just give yourself the part. Like
0: if I was allowed to choose my part, I would choose her part. Cause she, she was the funniest. She had the best lines.
1: She's so funny in this. She, she's she's so funny. She's the best part of the movie. She's yeah. great
0: the the princess who has been married several times and is the opposite of her brother. Like he's kind of a stick in the mud and she's like very bohemian and like, I like everything. I'm very loose with myself. I've been married a bunch. I just want to have a lot of sex. She falls for Joel McRae and oh, oh, I forgot to mention, oh, how could I forget this plot point? Joel McRae follows her to Palm Beach and he gets the money from the weenie king. He gets, the weenie king comes back to their apartment and is like, I moved in down the hall because I liked you all so much. Where's your pretty wife? And he's like, she left me. And he's like, good for her. But I like you guys. How can I get you back together? And the guy, he tells him to go on the plane and meet her at the train and give her flowers. So he does that, finds out she's not on the plane, finds out she took a yacht with the rich guy goes to the yacht station. Is that what it's called? The yacht dock? I'm not a yachter. I should also mention how pompous this Hackensacker fellow is. Constantly being like, oh, having money is such a pain. And you're like, oh my God, shut up, shut up, shut up. Uh, At the yacht dock, uh, Joel McRae is waiting for her, sees her with this rich guy. He's like, how did she hook a rich guy so fast? Also, their boat was called the Earl King, E-R-L, like the oil king. So Claudette Colbert has kind of implied that her husband was not great to Rudy Valley. So when she sees him there, she can't tell him that's her husband because they might not like each other and he might not give him the money and he might beat him up. So what she ends up doing is saying, this is my brother and Rudy Valley's very nice to him. Mary Astor like wants him to be her next husband after, you know, she has been dating Toto this whole time. Yes.
1: This is my brother, Captain McGlue.
0: (laughs) My brother, Captain McGlue. What a good comedy name. And he's like, where the hell did you get that from? And he's like, isn't your mom's name McGlue? And he's like, it's McGrew. And she's like, ah, McGlue, Captain McGlue. That was a very good point to make. It's Thank important. You. It was important. It's like Mr. McGoo. I wonder if that's where McGoo came from, from McGlue. OK, Almost certainly. So Joel McRae doesn't like this. He doesn't like this rich man hitting on his wife in front of him. I don't know why he goes along with it, but he goes along with this insane plan of like, I'm your brother. Rudy Valley decides he wants to propose to her. He buys her this really huge ring in order to woo her. He like plays this beautiful, romantic song for her from the balcony. But she decides, "Ah, oh, I can't. This song is sexy. I need help getting out of my dress and my husband has to unzip me. I think I just like want to be with my husband and be poor. And so she decides she's going to be with her husband and she tells Rudy Valley and he's like, well, that's a bummer, but Hey, I know that you're not her brother anymore. You're her husband, but like, can I still please fund your terrible idea? And he's like, you still want to fund my idea? Even though, you know, I'm going to marry, or I am married to the woman that you love. And he's like, yeah. And then they both go, ah, what a shame that you don't have a sister. And she goes, I do, I have a twin sister. Didn't I tell you? And then Joel McRae goes, and I have a twin brother. Didn't I tell you? But that's a plot for another day. Or he says something like that. Like that's a plot for another story. Um, And so the very end of the film is Joel McRae and Claudette Colbert together. (laughs) And then we pan to the right and we see Rudy Valley marrying Claudette Colbert as her twin sister looking confused. And then Joel McRae marrying Mary Astor also looking confused. And then we get the same credits we got before and they all lived happily ever after. Or did they? And that's the film. That's the movie. What a weird, wonderful piece.
1: Okay, at the beginning of this movie, <laughs> where one Claudette Colbert is locked in a club, what's, what's going on? What, is that supposed to be the wedding at the end? This my guess, is that the one who's tied up was supposed to be marrying Joel McCrae that day, but the sister decided that she liked him. So she tied up her sister and married him in, in her place.
0: I think it's a double that. I think that the sister oh. was supposed to marry not Joel McRae, but Joel McRae's twin. Joel McRae took over for his twin. Claudette Colbert took over for her twin. They married each other and figured it out. And then we're like, oh, but I like you even more. But then this begs the question of why didn't the other two get together? Why didn't the twin and the other twin get together if they were actually probably supposed to marry each other?
1: But you can't even think, because if you start to think about it, the whole thing falls, yeah. it's so dumb. It's ridiculous. I see this a lot, I feel like, in older movies where, like, pre, like, nineteen like sixty four, they didn't believe in a third act in a screenplay, and they would just tie everything together in the last two minutes of the film, where it's like, when the two minutes left, they're just like, oh, by the way, um, all that shit happened before, um, it's okay, and nobody's mad, oh, you're not mad at me? Cool, I'm not mad at you either. Hey, okay, we're done, bye! <laughs> they just like wrap it up. Like this one, it just wrapped up like so fast. And then they drop the twin thing on you and it's like,
0: what? A lot of films did do that, where they wrapped everything up really quickly in the past. But I think this was almost like, it set you up in this really zany, weird way that hadn't been done before. Like that opening is really fresh. Like that's not something you saw a lot back then. So even though at first you're like, oh my God, they're never gonna explain this. And that was literally just to set tone. They, it was just so they could have one punchline at the end. It was like the longest, stupidest, like joke ever. It had a purpose, but it was only just so everything could tie up in that super weird way at the end. And so they could have the same, like, and they left happily ever after, or did they? Like, I think it was all just to set all that in place and everything else was like ideas in between.
1: And it's like, it works because it's the whole, from the from the jump, it's just like, look, just don't take this too seriously. It's ridiculous. The whole thing's gonna be ridiculous. Just have fun, just enjoy it. Like And it works enough on an entertainment level. It's just so charming that it just doesn't matter.
0: The plot is not great in this film. I
1: 100% agree with you. I didn't even remember that opening sequence until after the movie ended and I was thinking about it and I was like wait what the hell happened at the beginning of this movie there was like a maid screaming and a big shadow like I, I went and researched it online like I was like I have to go back and watch the opening credits again and I tried to just find somebody writing like here's what's happening in the opening and you get it's just all open to interpretation which is like the craziest because this isn't like Rashomon like you know this is a straightforward romantic comedy and it's like yeah, you just kind of got to fill in the gaps. What, what do you think happened in the beginning? It's like, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, you know? Yeah. But then they pull back and they give you this beautiful effect with the And they lived happily. And you're like, oh, this looks so nice. Like, and, and like you said, like, it's so different from most opening credit sequences. And it grabs you immediately that you just don't care. It, it immediately tells you somehow without even conveying this thought, it's just immediately the film telling you, just don't think about it too hard. Just have a good time, and that is carried through the whole film. But then there are certain ideas that feel very ahead of their time. Obviously, the the mesh airport being one of them. When Joel McRae first comes back to ask her how she got the money, he like straight up says like, "Oh, you had sex with this guy. This guy asked you for sex." Like, and I was like, "Wow, that's 1942." Yeah. that's a real that's a heck of a thing to say on in a movie
0: even just like the implication of them having sex like she's sitting in his lap he's undoing her dress he they have like a very steamy kiss they show her toes curling up yeah because we have to know what she's really thinking because she's like i want to leave you and we see your toes curl up and we're like no you don't your toes just curled up and then he carries them to their bedroom where they have one bed that they sleep in together like that's pretty ahead of its time. And actually the Hays Code stuff is what I wanted to talk about a little too. So this film um, was rejected by the Hays Code several times before it finally got through to production. So we've talked about the Hays Code on the podcast in the past. That was like a very strict production code of rules that you had to follow on film from like 1934 to 1968. And it was really restrictive about what you could show and what you could imply. The first two like working titles of the film that he submitted to the Hays Code were called, Is Marriage Necessary and Is That Bad? (laughs) And they were rejected because of their uh, sexual suggestive situations and dialogue. And then it was rejected again for its light treatment of marriage and divorce and for the similarities between John D Hackensacker III and John D Rockefeller. And then they also, um, they changed some things so that it would be like less implied. And then they also changed um, the number of the princess's marriages. She apparently had eight marriages uh, that went from eight to three, and but they kept the two annulments intact. But they, he had to change a lot. Like it was more sexually suggestive than this. And it, it stayed pretty flippant about marriage. But yeah, it, he couldn't get it past the Hays Code for a minute. Like he had to keep changing it. And this is what we got. And it's still pretty suggestive, I think.
1: Yeah, I would say so. And I don't think there's a single person that would see that movie. I mean, and think that J.D. Hackensacker wasn't supposed to be Rockefeller. I mean, they, how'd they get away with using J.D.?
0: I think they just call him Hackensacker a lot. You know what I mean? I feel like they don't say his name that much. Well, I don't know how they got away with it. But I think nowadays, it, you wouldn't know. I don't think a, lo- a lot of people know or think about the Rockefellers. But in the past, I don't know. Maybe it was just enough of a nod.
1: Uh, I mean, the general public, if you, if it came out today, yeah, we're not bad nigh. But I mean, anybody who knows the Rockefellers. But even more than that, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty suggestive. Claudette Colbert's whole thing when she's talking to him is she says like, she's like, you don't get it. Like, you don't know me from the back of your neck anymore. Like, I'm very attractive. Yeah. You you know, when people, you know, this is what happens to me. I go out and if I ask for something, it's not hard for me to get. And then she sort of proves that throughout the film, basically time and time again. And she's like, if I, you know, if if I'm around men, I can not, it is not hard for me. And I thought that was like very empowering because she's like aware that she has this power and then she wields it to, she's using it to get away from her husband because she wants a divorce because she loves him, but she needs to get she wants to get money for his air heir- like these dots of these very sort of clever ideas that in the broader scheme of the story, you're like, well, who cares? Well
0: and I think if I was her, maybe in her brain, she's thinking, okay, I'm not going to be hot forever. Cause I think she says that at one point too. So maybe she's like, I'll bag me the rich husband now get that money for you. You'll get rich again. Hey, guess what? Palm beach is for divorce. (laughs) We'll be in my brain. That's what she was kind of doing, but I add that they don't ever say that
1: the plot of like, I'll divorce you, but I'll meet somebody who has money. And that way I like this ridiculous convoluted plan of like, I'll sacrifice our happiness and our relationship because I can get you this money and then you'll get the thing you want. And I'll have to quietly sit with someone else who I don't care for and pretend like I'm like, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yes.
0: But it calls back to this idea too, that we talked about in the women of how like, it is so messed up that the best you can do as a woman is through your marriage. Like the best financially job wise. Cause like you could have a smaller job potentially. You could be a secretary. You could do all of these other things that like pay your rent. But the only way you're going to advance and have any money is to become a rich person's wife. And that is your, not just like your love life, but that's your job too. So like if Claudette Colbert had all this confidence, what she could have done in the world, like versus like I can be someone's wife versus like I can run a company or I can, like if she had a place for that ambition or she had a place to put those things, how cool would that have been? And if she didn't have a husband who like, they could have just kind of stayed married and been happy if he would let her go out and like get him money. It's his issue more than hers. So she's just trying to find a creative way to solve it. I'm not saying it's a great idea. It's a a legitimately awful, awful idea. But I was more willing to listen to her about it than to him because she was like, this is our problem. I've tried to solve it this way. You weren't into that. So now I'm going to solve it this way. But she was incorrect. She should have just stuck with the love. But also, why couldn't they have lived in a less expensive apartment? If you don't have a lot of money, it doesn't seem to make sense to live on Park Avenue.
1: That was the lifestyle that they wanted, I guess. You know, walk the walk, talk the talk, right? If you want to be a big game inventor who's inventing airplanes that block out the sun, Then you have to live on, you know, you got to live on Park Avenue, I guess.
0: Um, I also just want to say that she was the way bigger movie star than him at this point in time. And her salary for this film, she was the highest paid actress of the year. It was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and he made sixty thousand dollars. And I am over the moon about that. (laughs) She was the star of this picture and she got paid like it. And I'm like, yes. Cause she's in every scene pretty much. And he is not. Yeah. So they both got top billing, but she got paid way more.
1: No, it feels much more about her. He's chasing her around a bunch, but she's sort of the person we see the story unfold
0: through. And I also want to add that like Claudette Colbert is so freaking likable that like, even though we shouldn't really like her character, cause again, her idea is terrible. She's turning down love for money. She sounds on paper like a gold digger, but you like her so much because she has like good intentions about it. Her intentions are always good. Um, and the way she treats people is always pretty good. She's conniving and scheming, but not in like a gross way. There's something still likable about it. Like she's pretty upfront about it with everybody. She even tells Rudy Valley, like, oh, I'm looking to marry a man with money, but like, not too much money, but just enough money. <laughs> I'm just trying to find out like what what makes her still so likable in this very potentially unlikable scenario?
1: Things also just sort of happen to her, like with hack and sack or like. He just sort of like takes a shine to her and is like, I'm going to buy you all this stuff. And she's sort of like, I mean, this is like a lot of stuff. And he's like, no, I I like doing this. This is fun. It's like you said, like her, her intentions are good. One of the few times where you see her kind of like lose her temper, be a little short with somebody is is when she's talking to one of the three black people in the movie who's like, oh, yeah, they separated that car with all those crazy guys. And she's like, what are you talking about, idiot? I don't know. Where are my clothes? She's all of a sudden I was like, oh, hmm. And that was uh, one of the things that obviously has not aged well about this movie. On the one hand, I was really happy to see like black people with lines in the movie. That was great. They had speaking parts. But on the other hand, they were all service people working on the train. And like the guy who is throwing the crackers to the crackers with the guns in what could have been like a i mean it's like not a not funny scene i guess it's like like i kind of just hated those guys i was just kind of like you guys are awful
0: they're rich white millionaires
1: but how much funnier would that scene have i mean and whatever now i'm critiquing something from the 40s you know living in in 2021 it's a right it's a different world but like if the bartender is allowed to have like a real reaction instead of just sort of like smiling when he throws the crackers like how much funnier is that scene there were a few moments like that
0: everything you said yes 100 that was like one of my modern lens things of like that does not age well at all of their treatment of people of color in this film we've talked about this on the podcast as well because it's so important to talk about like they're placed in these horrible like stereotypical ideas of what people had about african-american people back then the way they had them kind of talk with an accent and the way they had them behave um, not like real people, but like a stereotype idea. And they kind of do that with um, with uh, Toto too, in terms of like the immigrant thing. The immigrant's going to take advantage of us and isn't as bright as us. Yeah, I didn't love any of the treatment of anyone that was not like a white person.
1: Anytime that you watch a movie from this time period, you're aware of, of yes. American history. But when it's so in your face like that, I mean, that was something that, I don't know, that it just sort of, it just leaves a very bad taste in my mouth watching yeah. it now to see those scenes and to see them kind of still in, I mean, obviously yeah. they're still in the film. They're part of the film, but they, they just, like I said, they just leave a bit of it a It sucks.
0: Taste. Well, and even just the scene you were talking about, I couldn't find the right words. I still can't find the right words because it's like, I want to say they're infantilizing him or like making him have these childlike reactions when he, that person in real life would not have those reactions if he, they were in that circumstance, but um, they leave him on that train. They don't even take care of him. Like
1: true, yeah. that
0: was insane to me. Cause that's what I was thinking. I was like, well, where's George? What's happening with George? He's stuck in the train with those psychopaths with guns. And you see George like, running after the train that's leaving him behind to fend for himself with a bunch of like white monsters who are trying to murder him. So I agree with you. That stuff is hard to watch. And thank you for pointing out that Claudette Colbert was like, one of the one times she's rude is to like a black man in a serving position to her. It's, it is not cool.
1: It really bothered yeah. me. I, I don't yeah. know because she was like so lovable. And then the second that happened, I was like, Ugh, it's just gross. And he
0: helps her. She doesn't have any clothes because her clothes were on that car that got separated, which apparently happened in real real life. Preston Sturgis saw that happen in real life. A car gets separated because of behavior. So he wrote it into his movie. Yeah.
1: That's how he had the idea for separating cars. He invented train car separation. That's how he got the idea. Pokemon and train car separation.
0: So Claudette Colbert, they all try to gather clothes for her from the train and all the clothes look ridiculous from the other female passengers. So she makes this actually really cool outfit out of the pajama top that was given to her and a Pullman Porter blanket. So like, The Pullman Porter, the one she was just yelling at was the one that gave her the solution. And she had a black maid helping her and the black maid gave her those earrings. So like in the end, the people that you were just rude to were the people that like helped you the most, that served you the most kindness. But yeah, that bothered me too. But I will say she did look really great in that scene. That was a really cool outfit that she made out of a blanket and some pajamas. So yes, all of that let me gracefully pivot from racism to the ending. How did they shoot that ending? This would have been really advanced for the time. They had the doubles that they used or like, so it's them how, cause this would have been new technology-ish in the forties of like having Claudette Colbert stand next to herself and Joel McRae be in the same shot as himself. And then also they pull through that, there's like two glass title cards. So like, how did they do that was my question. And I don't have the answer. Do you have any ideas?
1: I mean, in terms of putting them next to each other, I think they probably just shot the scene separately and then they overlay the film on top. You know, you have a stationary camera, you shoot one person standing on one, then you shoot the other person standing on the other side and put the film over the the other piece of film. In terms of the film stuff, I don't know. I mean, those are practical uh, title cards. so. They must have had some, some sort of operation where they were flying them in or something at the last second. It looks amazing. It really looks cool. It was it was honestly one of my favorite parts of the movie, that pullback that they did those two times. I'm glad they did it twice because we worth seeing two times. Oh, the coolest full circle
0: way to start and end the film. So Preston Sturgis is insane. He's one of those people that did so many things in one lifetime, you know, like, For example, Claudette Colbert, I was looking her up. There's not really going to be a lot to talk about because her life was pretty much her career and there's not really a lot about her floating out in the world. Preston Sturgis has so many random factoids about him on the internet that you're like, is all of this true? And some stuff that I remember hearing about him wasn't even what I was reading. Like, I feel like I remember on TCM them talking about him potentially being manic or bipolar because of the amount of content he produced in five years, the way he was able to do that, like right at night, shoot all day, do all of these things, so consistently for such a pressure cooker amount of time. Um, They were like, they think he might've been manic for that period. But anyway, Preston Sturgis, he was famous for first being a writer who then transitioned to directing. And he's one of the first people to kind of do that. Um, Like a lot of people who... Were writers and directors were famous, but he was the first person to like be well known as a writer first and then transition into directing. He won an Oscar in 1941 for best original screenplay for The Great McGinty. And some of his films of note that he wrote and directed are um, Sullivan's Travels, The Lady Eve, Christmas in July, Miracle of Morgan's Creek, Hail the Conquering Hero, Unfaithfully Yours, and more. Like he wrote more that I didn't even name, but that's what he like wrote and directed. And that was all in a five-year period, all of, well, and Faithfully Yours was later. Most of those were within a five-year period. Oh, and he was also famous for, like, elevating the screwball comedy. That was, like, his, what he was known for. Um, So screwball comedies were something happening in the late 30s, and they're very funny, and they're very beautiful and romantic a lot of times, too. But he adds this, like, witty, more naturalistic, mature, ahead-of-its-time vibe to them. Um, and usually, in my opinion, they're a little bit, like, darker, the ideas behind his films. So, like, like the Lady Eve, which which I love, is Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda. And it's about a con artist who's trying to con a man, falls in love with him. He realizes her con. So she double cons him so that he'll fall back in love with her. Like, it's, so it's like the characters aren't necessarily honest. Or, like, you root for them, but they're not great people. Unfaithfully yours which I think you would actually love, Daniel. It's this weird gem that came out in 1948, like way after his productive period. It's considered like his last good film that he wrote. And it stars Rex Harrison. And the whole film, most of it takes place in Rex Harrison's mind. He's a conductor of an orchestra. And so while he's conducting three different pieces, he's planning how he's gonna murder his wife who is played by Linda Darnell. So each piece, it's a different scenario that he tries to plan her murder for because he thinks she's cheating on him. So when he goes home to actually do the plan, because he does try to do the plan, he's comedically failing miserably each time. And I'm I'm gonna kind of spoil it for you because it's forever ago and whatever. But he realizes she's not cheating on him. And he's like, oh, thank God I didn't kill her. But you're like rooting for the main character to potentially murder his wife. It's like these dark themes that he somehow makes funny. And Miracle Morgan's Creek, it's about a girl that gets pregnant in the 1940s from a soldier and she doesn't know his name. And she says, she's like, we got married and I was drunk and I don't know his name. So it's like these kind of darker themes that he turns to comedies. And he was always screwed over by the censors, essentially. Like, even in The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, the whole, um, the point he wanted to get across was like, ladies, you don't have to give everything to the servicemen. They'll try to, like, get you to sleep with them. You really don't have to. That's, like, not your duty as an American. You can do what you want with your body. You do not have to sleep with these men. Um, but the censors were like, no, you can't put that in there. So he did it. But his life is so weird. Or not weird. It's just so unusual. Like, he had a mom who was kind of like Mary Astor in this film. His stepfather was the third marriage and she had gotten annulled with his actual father. So his stepfather adopted him. His stepfather was insanely wealthy and was kind of like the Rudy Valley character in this. Um, And his mom was kind of like the Mary Astor character and they didn't really get along. And I think they ended up getting divorced too, but his stepdad adopted him. That's why he's named Sturgis. It was his stepdad's name. His mom traveled everywhere, all over Europe. She was really good friends with the famous dancer Isadora Duncan and often would like go on tour with her for fun. So he was raised everywhere. He grew up a lot in France. He was a Francophile. His last film was about the French and toward the end of his life, um, that's where he was hanging out most of the time. He was in the Army Air Force for World War I, but he did not leave Texas. So he did not see any action in the war. This is not verified. It is on IMDb. I don't know if this is a fact, but this is where we get into the inventor stuff. It says on that page. So his third stepdad was wealthy because he owned a company called Maison Desti. And that his mom also owned too, I guess. And so he invented a kiss-proof lipstick called Red Rouge in 1920 for that company. And that was a success. And he also allegedly invented a ticker tape machine, a photo etching process, an automobile and an airplane that were very unsuccessful. So his one big success was Red Rouge lipstick. He eventually turns to writing plays, He's pretty good at it. They do really well. He has a big break on Broadway with Strictly Dishonorable. It earns a good amount of money. That gets him noticed by Hollywood. He goes to Hollywood. He writes scripts and he feels really frustrated by the studio system and by the lack of control he has over his scripts. He eventually um, teams up with Howard Hughes and they start their own production company, California Pictures. Just a nice,
1: solid name. Rolls off the tongue.
0: We're in California. What should we call our company? I just don't know. I've got it. California Pictures. So, yeah, him and Howard Hughes start a company together. This is during Howard Hughes's kind of decline. And also, it's when it's so ironic that when he's finally given freedom, this is when he starts making flops. <laughs> so, they don't work well together. The company doesn't do well. He signs with Fox to do Unfaithfully Yours. That's the last good picture. He does a bunch of flops. He eventually moves to Europe and then does one more film. That's kind of it. He dies at 60 of a heart attack while writing his autobiography at the Algonquin Hotel.
1: Friday will be the 62 year anniversary of his death and the 36 year anniversary of my birth.
0: He died on your birthday? Daniel. He died
1: on my birthday.
0: (gasps) Whoa, that's like very, are you him reincarnated? Uh, I would say maybe like
1: 25%
0: of that. Are you an inventor who is maybe manic and writes all the time? Yeah, I don't know. He was also married four times and had three sons. So that's like the opposite of you, who is like married to a wonderful human and has like two <laughs> your
1: daughters. I'm very proud. I'm very proud of my daughter. <laughs> I
0: am too. I love your daughters. <laughs> They're great. That was a very long Preston Sturgis, but we had to fit it all in because he's just such a freaking unusual human and the movies that he made in that short time, like there are so few people, how many hits can you name in a pressure cooker like that? You know what I mean? Just like hit after hit after hit for five years, so many movies and then like nothing (laughs) like the creative spark. God, he was like an expensive perfectionist, I think was what they referred to him as. Um, So that was him. Yeah. I didn't write a lot about Mary Astor, but like we can talk about her character because her and Rudy Valley to me are the two funniest parts of this. Um, she's funny because of her wit. He's funny because of his pompousness and delivery.
1: She's just so funny from the second that she's like on screen and she has the best lines too. She's self-aware somehow but like, she's completely self-aware of the fact that she's like, yeah, I've been married a bunch of times. And, uh, she has one line where she says to Joel McRae while they're dancing. She's like, but I mean, I'll marry anybody. I'm crazy. I laughed out loud at, at, a number of her lines.
0: The part where he was like, you only think about object A, don't you? He means sex. And she's like, yeah, I sure do. Thinking about it right now. She's real upfront about it.
1: She calls him drip trap at one point. She's just like, all right, you go do that drip drap. And then she just walks away. Like, she's just living. She's just living. She's talking to... To her brother and he's like, I was gonna get some kids and see how she did with the kids. She's like, what are you talking about? What do you do? rent children? What, what are you talking about? She's just like this force that's almost like poking holes in the movie as it goes. Like she has a certain awareness. The only person I can think of who's replicated it would be Tom Hardy in Venom, where he just seems to be aware that the movie is a disaster and getting worse and worse as it goes. And he's just gonna lean into it and just have the most fun ever. The difference being here that this is actually a good picture, but like, she almost exists outside of the movie. Like I had this thought that I was like, everyone is in one movie and she's just like in her own movie, but still very much within the world of this movie. But like, like you get the impression if a character, if somebody like walked up to her and was like, madam, are you aware that you're in a film right now? And this isn't real life. She'd be like, yes, of course. Yes, I know that.
0: She's like the, the commentator for all of us. You know, and I wish he was in more of the film. There was a quote about, so what they're saying about Preston Sturgis in this film is he is essentially a satirist without any stable point of view from which to aim his satire. He is apt to turn his back on what he has been sniping at to demolish what he has just been defending. He is contemptuous of everybody except the opportunist and the unscrupulous little woman who at some point in every picture labels the hero a poor sap. Another phase of his attack is shrouding in slapstick the fact that The Godfather pays off not for perseverance or honesty or ability, but merely from capriciousness. That sums all of this up, don't you think? Because he's like making comments about rich people, but nothing sticks.
1: Hackensacker has a little notebook where he's writing down how much everything costs, right? But he's only writing that down so that we as the audience can see the insane amount of money that he's spending. Like, it's not enough for us just to see that clearly he's buying this entire store and buying all this stuff. We're seeing the totals. And then she's like, oh, you like to write that stuff down? And he's like, yeah, but I don't even add it up. I don't know. I just like writing stuff down. You know, like, it's like, yeah, rich people. Am I right? They're total friggin' weirdos. You know, like, I don't know. That was another part that like that stuck with me because I was like, that's like such a weird quirk that this dude is writing down every pen, But he's so wealthy that who cares? It's a hobby. A hobby of his is writing down the amount of money that- he Well, he
0: spent. cares what things cost. He's like, we're going to get the 75 cent breakfast.
1: What's the best value? Oh,
0: right. and when she ordered the prairie oyster and I looked up what that was and I was horrified. It sounds gross.
1: repulsive. That character too, the slow reveal that he's actually incredibly wealthy. Like the fact that he starts out, he's like, he doesn't have his own car. He's in a bottom bunk. And then he's having breakfast and he's like, oh, well, which one's the most valued? You know, he's cheap, right? And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, actually, you can get this and get this and get this. And then all of a sudden, you see the, the ledger and all, all the stuff. But I just have to, I'm sorry, but I have to go back to um, Mary Astor very Please quickly. Please do. Because Please. of this line. You will care for me, though. I grow on people like moss. The choice of moss. I mean, moss is arguably like not something like I know moss grows on things. But you're like, oh, there's moss all over the rock. You didn't ask for the moss to grow on you, you know, it's in the delivery too that she sort of lets it hang for like moss, it's like, oh. How lovely, what a wonderful image.
0: And she's so quick
1: too. Like they just throw them in there but don't really
0: leave time to breathe first. Like there's no laugh track here. There's no pausing for laughter. They move on and I love it. Well, and Mary asked her how cool that she can do this because she's all over the place with her career. Like what she's able to do. Like this is the woman who the year before this was in the Maltese Falcon playing the femme fatale. She's got femme fatale. She's got ingenue. She's all over the place with what she can do. So I don't know. I love that about her. She's in meet me in St. Louis in a couple of years, a couple of years, like two years. So yeah, I feel like she does the motherly roles pretty soon after this, but she was also like considered so many other things. Like she was an ingenue in her day and very dramatic. And here she is like crushing it with comedy her delivery is spot on.
1: I'm crazy. I'll marry anybody. It's like and for a character in a 1940s movie to like to be that self-aware was very, very funny to me.
0: That's very Preston Sturges, I feel, too. I do want to talk about Rudy Valley because he's the worst. So apparently everybody hated him. Everybody hated him. If you were like, Sarah, what's a factoid you remember from seeing this at the film festival at TCM? And it was literally just them being like. Rudy Valley was a pompous ass. (laughs) Like he basically like was this character kind of, of just, he was very full of himself. He had a really bad temper. So I didn't write down a lot about him. I want to talk about like Claudette Colbert and Joel McRae more, but he came up kind of through the system as a crooner. He was a musician. He was a band leader. He treated the people in his band terribly, physically abused them, Um, was pretty much a terrible monster uh, and it was just awful to be around and there are homages to him being a singer like when he's crooning to her when he's serenading her and she's on the balcony Um, he's playing this fop character so well and that's so interesting to me that like he maybe in real life doesn't have the self-awareness that he's displaying playing this character but knowing how he was in life he just sounds awful. The flip side of that is everybody loved Claudette Colbert. Fred McMurray said um, at another interview I saw once, his daughter spoke and she said, my father had two favorite leading ladies. One of them was Claudette Colbert. And I can't remember th- who the other one was, but I remember it wasn't Barbara Stanwyck. Cause I went, oh, not Barbara Stanwyck.
1: This is a little trivia for you there that there were two of them, but uh, one of them was not Barbara Stanwyck.
0: One of them was Claudette oh. Colbert. He loved working with her. He said she was just like, so great on set. You know, I imagine she's probably a lot like the characters she plays. Her biggest film, I think, is It Happened One Night. Would you agree with that statement?
1: Absolutely.
0: So It Happened One Night. Huge hit. She wins an Oscar for it for Best Actress. Um, Some of her other big films are Midnight, uh, Cleopatra, which is her last like sexy film. She had done some sexy films in the 30s, like pre-code. And after Cleopatra, she was so mortified by that film. And like, just the way they kind of objectified her that she was like, no, no more of those. No, no. She was in Since You Went Away, which is like a wartime film that was very popular. Um, I saw Honor Among Lovers. That's the Dorothy Arzner film she was in. I saw that at New Bev and it's not good, but Dorothy Arzner directed it. Yay, female directors. She was in Imitation of Life. She was in The Egg and I, which is the one I saw at the festival where they talked about Fred McMurray. So those are just some of her films. She did so many. She worked forever. Oh, this is another fun fact. I know about her. She loved being filmed on the left. She felt like that was her way better side. And so if you look at her in the film, she's always on the right side of the screen always. And she would like have people change things for her, like change sets around. So specifically she could be shot on the left. Like she was always very aware of how she looked on camera and knew all about like lighting and knew all about like what would make her look best and like enforced it. Smart. I love that. Smart. So there's that. Um, She's famous for her face. She has like this very unusual face. It's like a round face with really large cheekbones and really big eyes and like extra long drawn on eyebrows. And I feel like she kind of looks like if Betty Boop and Minnie Mouse and Snow White had a baby.
1: Yeah, I see it. She's
0: also famous for her legs, which she said she got. Well, let me just get into her story. Uh, She was born in France, but her family moved to Manhattan when she was like very young. Uh, and they lived in a fifth-floor walk-up, and she said, "That's why my legs look so good because I had to climb a fifth-floor walk-up my whole life." Fair enough. That's the famous shot. There were two homages to it. Happened one night in this film. One of them is when they show her legs in that one scene because that's what they do. And it happened one night when she's hitchhiking. They show that shot of her legs, and then the scene where she's running out with the wedding dress and the long veil. That happens, and it happened one night too. So I was like, "Oh, there's like an homage going on here."
1: She she has kind of a kind of a Lucille Ball vibe. Too. oh okay
0: like the eyelashes is maybe like how our eyes are
1: maybe the hair i got kind of a lucille ball vibe. also lucille ball born on my birthday did not die on my birthday Yeah, your
0: birthday is a magical day
1: it's a very magical day yeah
0: oh muzzle, muzzle, daniel
1: thank you very much
0: so this is our first episode of the season so not only is it like magical your birthday but like this is a special episode this
1: is the my birthday special episode
0: um gladi colbert she was fluent in French because, you know, she had been born in France. She originally wanted to be a fashion designer and at a party she was at, she was offered a part in a play because that's how her life goes. And so for a while she did a ton of theater, but she was always typecast as a French maid, which she hated. She was very lucky with her timing because she was on stage at the time that the demand for stage actors who could handle dialogue in talkies was like coming up for film. Cause talkies were like just starting to happen. They needed stage actors cause they knew how to speak on film. So they're, people were looking like talent scouts were looking for stage actors and there she was one really cool thing I learned about her today was that she almost played Margo Channing and all about Eve. Oh, wow. She was the original choice and she severely injured her back and had to leave the project like just shortly before shooting. But I can't imagine it without Betty Davis, so I think it was probably for the best. Yeah. Plus, Claudette Colbert did fine.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the other thing is it's not like she didn't have a career.
0: No, she had a like a very long career in films. Like worked well into her 40s and 50s. Like she worked a long time, um, and then she retires from film, does a lot of TV, does a lot of Broadway. Like still keeps acting, and then eventually like actually retires and lives a long life. Um, and there's not really a lot about her. One weird thing that I found out was um, she in night, she was married two times and her first marriage was a secret marriage. She got married in 1928 to this guy, Norman Foster, who was an actor and director in a play she was in with him. And he got really bad reviews, I guess, in the play, but they were married for five years. They lived in separate houses and it was secret. (laughs) And Her her parents didn't like them her dad didn't like him. And he like, wouldn't let him in their house that she shared with her parents it's all very strange but i was like oh that's unusual
1: very romantic very very
0: conducive to a long-lasting marriage which is why they only married for five years so there's that that's like claudette colbert in a nutshell there's no bad stories about her so that's all good joel mccray is the other like co-star leading man of this film he is famous for Sullivan's Travels, which is another Preston Sturgis film, um, Foreign Correspondent, a Hitchcock film, The Most Dangerous Game, which was earlier. That's like the people hunting people on an island film. The More, the Merrier. I like that one. Uh, Primrose Path, Union Pacific, and like every Western ever from 1946 to 1976. He did a ton of Westerns. He's kind of like the California kid. Like this is a guy that grew up in Pasadena, He had a paper route that delivered to Cecil B. DeMille. He went to Hollywood High School. Um, He worked with Barbara Stanwyck a lot. His career kind of goes from being like a very sexy man in the 30s who like might not have a ton of clothes on um, to being like a leading man. So then he's the leading man. And then when he can't be the leading man anymore, he's like Westerns for the rest of my life. I'm obsessed with them. I want to be a cowboy. I have a ranch. I love riding horses. Westerns. So yeah, from the the remake of The Virginian on, that's all he does. And um, he was married to this woman named Frances D, who was another, a fellow actress. Um, They married in 1933 and they had three sons and they stayed married until he died. They were married for 57 years. And I like that. We did talk about the money. I did do some Googling over what things would have cost. So he pays $315 for a dress for Claudette Colbert in 1942. And I was like, I wouldn't pay $314 for a dress today. So I looked that up and that's like $5,000 in 1942. Yeah, that's steep. And he bought a lot of them.
1: And he buys a ton of them.
0: And then the actor that played Toto is named Sig Arno. And the actor that played the Weenie King is Robert Dudley.
1: Sig Arno?
0: He looked so familiar, but I couldn't, like I wasn't sure what else he was in. Same with the Weenie King. He looked like he was in a lot of stuff too.
1: Roscoe Eights, he just played a member of the Quail Club. Oh, that, that was just an interesting one. name that I saw. Yeah, those guys were the absolute worst.
0: Who is like, okay, we're, we have this awesome private car. Also, just first of all, their dogs were loose in that car. So there was pee and poop probably everywhere in this fancy, fancy train car. Why do they think it's okay to shoot up the windows? How did they not die? More questions. Maybe there was a bloodbath after the fact.
1: Well, you know, it's again, the whole movie's telling you don't think too hard about this. You know,
0: correct. You're 100% correct.
1: Just don't think about it too hard. One of the first people that you meet is like an old guy who can't hear anything. Who's just handing a woman money after she scares him in the shower. I mean, you know, why does she hide from him? She's like hiding. And then he just like finds her and she's like, get out of here. It's like, why wouldn't you just go over to him and say, get out of here? Why was this charade of you running around hiding in various places in your own home? I think it's because
0: she's hiding from her landlord. She doesn't want to be discovered because she doesn't want to have to pay anybody. But then it gets to a point where she's like this snoopy old man who literally licked my toothpaste and who's using my perfume.
1: He tried out the perfume.
0: It's expensive, you know? So she's like, you know what? I'm going to have a reckoning with this. But then they get along great because she gets along with everybody. She's so good at flowing. She can go with the flow. She's a
1: beautiful woman. So he's like, oh, this is such a coincidence. I really like beautiful women. And she's like, oh, what a coincidence. I am one. He's like, you know what? I should give you $700. And she's like, actually, you're right. You should give me that. That's the perfect idea. Here's a kiss on the cheek, you old creep. Get out of here. And he's like, sure, okay." I'll be back later to give your husbands more money for some reason. I'm in, I'm only in this movie to give people money. That's the only reason I exist. Oh God, but I loved it. I have a wife character. Why do I have a wife? What's her point? Why does she have a line in the movie? You can't like try to like analyze the script of this movie because it just it's just, it's pointless.
0: Yeah. It's not a movie about plot. It's a movie about moments. It's like, what are some really funny moments we can get out of this? Where can we go with this? Where
1: is what's funny? And they made a ton of movies like that back then. But
0: this one's like smarter than most, I would say. It's not the greatest film of all time, but it is at least like clever because some of them are not even clever. They're just silly. Oh, that's what they say about Preston Sturgis, too, as a director, though, of like he can combine the like someone will say something so achingly witty or devastating and then fall on their face it really combines the two as opposed to just someone falling on their face
1: i think that's accurate i mean all these characters kind of have moments where you see their intelligence and you see that they're smart for example she gets on the train claude eckelbert gets on the train with you she's like i'll show you i can get these guys to do whatever the heck i want i'll just quietly mention every time they go through that i don't have a ticket but then cut to her on the train being literally passed around By these guys. Oh, God, it's awful. Yeah, she's trying to go to sleep, and they're like, We got to show you something. It's this awful song that we all are singing. You're going to hate it. And sure enough, it's terrible. So, but she's just like, "Mm, whoops, I guess I didn't think everything through, you know? She was singing for her supper. She's listening to singing for her supper, which is arguably worse.
0: I love that she was like, I've gone to bed. And they're like, it's fine. Please let us crowd around you in your small, small
1: space. They were awful.
0: But she is so cool about everything in general. Not, not everything. As we had mentioned, she does have that gross altercation pretty early on. But in general, like she loses all her stuff and she's like, okay.
1: Well, she doesn't even bring a suitcase. This is true. Interaction with the cab driver is hilarious. She's so just like, "I don't have any money. Can I get in the car?" And he's like, "Yeah, that's fine. I'll I'll give you a free ride somewhere." And then the her husband with Joel McCrea is like, "Hey, stop!" And the cabbie's like, "Hey, buddy, just leave her alone, okay?" She just has this like superpower that it's like men are just gonna completely fall down in front of her, which is completely realistic that was just so funny to me that the cab driver on like immediately it's like that's no problem I'll just waive the fee this is my job and my life but sure what the heck you're a nice looking woman and then immediately defends her
0: it seems like they're doing do you remember that episode of what was that show Seinfeld <laughs> Seinfeld no it was Garfunkel
1: Garfunkel and Oates
0: that was the one so there was the <laughs> there was the episode where they try quote-unquote mermaiding where it's like as a woman, you're in a relationship and you don't talk, and the man just puts all of the assumptions on you, and it's like the most successful relationship either of them have ever had, and that's what keeps happening to Claudette Colbert. Is men just place assumptions on her over and over? So it's like the reason that cab driver I think gives her a free ride is he thinks she's being abused by her husband, right? She's yeah. leaving her husband. They're fighting over the luggage. The luggage goes. She gets in the car and she says, "Go." Like, that's the assumption that's made. Same with Rudy that's Valley. What,
1: right. He thinks right? That
0: he assumes the word. Everyone's assuming all these things. And she's just like, I'm going to let you assume that and I'm going to reap the benefits. And that's actually fine. I didn't lie. You assumed it. And I'm me. I'm delightful. The only
1: lie she tells is that her husband is her brother, which again, it's like these characters, like who they are. You think you have a grasp on like who they are as people. And then it just like goes out the window in the next scene. Like she's all of a sudden just a a massive lie that her husband is in fact her brother and his name is Captain McGlue.
0: If you think about it, his identical twin is her brother-in-law. So if she, in court, she could be like, oh, for one moment, I thought it was my brother-in-law. Like it would hold up potentially in court.
1: When they said that thing at the end, they were like, well, I have a twin. I was just like, I can't believe they did this in the movie. But then I could also believe it. I was like, of course they did this. As soon as the dude was like, well, too bad you don't have a sister. And then sure enough, she's like, well, we both have twins. You're like, what? Yeah, okay, sure. And then the twins at the wedding are like, huh, I'm getting married. And it's like, what? Did they not, what did they drug them? Like they just brought them here and were like, Okay, you say, just say I do when the guy, this is going to work. At, we want to build the airport, okay? We're going to make a mesh airport. They're going to get rid of all the trains and buses and people are going to fly places on a zip line. It was like Shakespearean. Yes,
0: but I, I will say like the twins did look confused, but they potentially are doing well for themselves in terms of money wise.
1: They're not even real people. I mean, that's what we, the audience, we're like, we're not supposed to care about them as people. I guess that's why I'm like, why even put the thing in the beginning? I mean, it like walked such a fine line of being like ridiculous, like, well, it is ridiculous, but like- it is of Being ridiculous. like, this is too stupid. You could like imagine him being like, oh, I can't <laughs> introduce these twins at the end of the movie. That'd be crazy. <laughs> Let me set. Let me plant a little seed at the beginning. I'll do this. I'll make everybody think they're about to watch an Agatha Christie novel adaptation, and that way, as they're leaving the theater, they'll be like, "Well, look, you know, honey, he set up for the twin thing in the beginning of it." The- like it was like what? <laughs> what, 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 what? Like, wouldn't yeah. it just be enough to have them getting ready for the wedding and having it be hectic and that they're late? Again, it's there's no point in even talking about this or going like there's no like if if Preston Sergis were the third person on this zoom call he was like (laughs) why are you thinking about this so much you loser you don't have anything else to do you have children it's almost 10 30 at night you're awake what, what are you worried about this for, okay? It's just a <laughs> yeah. fun movie. Get over it. Good God. It's, a, it's
0: ridiculous and fun. Didn't you have fun? Wasn't that over the top and, and crazy and zany? And I would have to
1: admit that I did. I'd have yeah. to admit that, yes, I did have fun. I would rather watch this any day of the week than like any Marvel movie. It's not close.
0: And this is only 90 minutes.
1: And there's more creativity and more, you know, interesting ideas in this than any of those. So... Even though the plot is, you know, you and I could probably think of it within the next 10 minutes if we wanted to. Like, it just it just doesn't matter because everybody plays their part really well and it's fun and you just, I don't know. It's just, it's so old Hollywood. It just feels so, so charming. I just keep going back to that word. It's just a charming film.
0: I do want to just, these are two little silly things that I was enjoying and noticing and thinking about. One, is the theme of her not being able to unzip her own dress comes up twice, and it leads to two very sexy moments. One, I don't totally believe that she can't unzip her dress. Two, the second dress didn't have a zipper in the back.
1: so good. I know. I love that so much. It just didn't even have a zipper in the back. It was was a little backless. It had, like, a collar. Yes! It'd be one thing if she was going like this, trying to get, like, the bottom part of it, but she's trying to get the collar, and she's like, "Eh, I can't get the zipper. You can see that there's no zipper there. Yeah. But it's like, they did, it's not like they reshot it. And they're like, oh, hang on a minute. Continuity, that doesn't make sense. Like, they just are like, it doesn't, who cares? They're it like,
0: doesn't. whatever, nothing matters.
1: Yeah. It doesn't Keep matter, it. okay? Stop thinking about it so much. You don't, you liked it, didn't you? Yeah, I'm glad you caught that too. It was driving me insane. <laughs> there was even a voice, the voice in my head goes like, there's no, and then she just goes, who cares? You know where this is going, right? They're going to call back the thing from the beginning with the zipper. It doesn't matter. She could be wearing a t-shirt, you know? She's going to be wearing like a Garfield oh, t-shirt. My t-shirt.
0: zipper is stuck.
1: Uh, oh the zipper on these garfield nightgowns always gets stuck it's like a picture of garfield eating lasagna on the front She's like hey can you help me and you're like like it clearly buttons in the front
0: i had one of those as a child there was no zipper in the back
1: those were huge in the early 90s
0: i will also say the other thing the pajamas i love that in the past pajamas were equivalent to being naked like when he runs after her and he's wearing his pajamas, he needs, he wraps like the comforter around him. So no one will see him in his pajamas and he loses his pajama bottoms and people can presumably see his buns or his old timey undies, I don't know. Her too. She's like, I can't leave this space in my pajamas. I have to hide in this upper berth because no one can see me in these skivvies. Just that idea is hilarious to me. Well,
1: you, you used to get dressed up to travel, right? If you're going on a plane or a train, you get dressed up, You put on a suit, You put on some nice clothes. I was actually thinking about that just today. We have these increasing reports of rudeness on airplanes and people being rude to uh, stewards and other passengers. And I thought, you know, what if we like brought back formal dress on the airplane? Maybe if everybody got on the airplane in like a tuxedo or a three piece suit or a pantsuit, everyone would be like, well, you know, we have to be a little nicer to each other. We all got dressed up today and came here. You know, I'm not the sort of person who's like, you know what, the problem is, is that we don't have enough of that old timey America. You know, like I think it gets dangerously close to that. But then I was like, no, I don't think this is that. I think if like United Airlines was like, all right, look, okay, you got change fees now. You don't have to pay change fees anymore. Okay. You make a flight, cancel it, reschedule it, whatever the hell you want. Okay. But you're wearing a suit and tie when you get on this plane. I think that would be a fair trade-off.
0: It depends what I have to wear as a woman. If they're like, and you have to wear heels, I'd be like, come on.
1: You don't have to wear heels, but I think you should wear, you know, either- this casual. Yeah, a, a blouse, you know, maybe a skirt or pants. Pants is okay too. I'm just saying everybody is, you know, a little bit better dressed than than they usually are because at the very least everyone would be so uncomfortable that they would be like, I don't, I'm not, hmm, I don't know. Maybe I haven't thought this through. I don't know. Can you, you know, if you're wearing a three piece suit, are you less likely to like yell at a steward who didn't bring you your, uh, Jack and Coke fast enough.
0: But then what about people from like poorer communities that might not have suits and stuff? What would they do? That's
1: a great question. But but the good news is, is that the airline is going to supply them with clothes. So the way this will work is, have you ever eaten at a restaurant, you know, where you have to wear a tie or a jacket? They'll give you a jacket, right? It's going to work like that. So let's say you you can't afford, you know, look, I can't afford these clothes. No problem. The airline will send you a stipend (laughs) They'll send you a $200 stipend to go to a Ross or a TJ Maxx, a Marshalls, whatever you have in your area, and you purchase the clothes. Now, if you attempt to use that stipend for anything else, then you can incur a fine. That's an issue. The money is to buy clothes. So you just show the receipts. Yeah. you And you also, I'm going to be honest with you. It's a lengthy process to prove that you don't have the funds to pay for these clothes, but the program exists. And if you, as long as you plan it out, you will be able to get the clothes. And actually the nice thing is, is that anyone can apply for this program, regardless of income. Um, if you are taking a flight soon, if you bought a ticket program, <laughs> what, what we, is there a movie we were talking is this a movie
0: podcast? <laughs> daniel's like really good at improv and we just caught him in a like a beautiful improv
1: flow i'm didn't I reading off my computer i wrote this, this
0: afternoon <laughs> this, you know what that idea is as good as the um idea that joel McCrae had in this film of the mesh airport atop skyscrapers well i think
1: I think you're not giving it quite enough credit. I think there is more of a- You're right. It's better. Than,
0: that's the worst idea ever. In
1: my, yeah. His idea is like, what if what if there was a way to cause more accidents? <laughs> He's like, what if, what if you could see less of the sun?
0: We did really do the modern lens. I mean, the roles of women in this, the wife, the people of color, the way they're treated, the immigrant stuff. I feel like we covered all that. So that was like our modern lens. I do want to read maybe quotes if you wrote them down that you want to share for sure. But the weenie King, I wrote weenie King and Toto shout out. I really liked those character actors. They Toto literally had no purpose plot wise, but was just fun. And they would show his face at the end of a scene and how he would react to things just because they were like, I think the audience wants to know what does Toto think?
1: Yeah. Yeats and Neats. I mean, I thought that was like. Yeats and Neats. It's great. Hilarious. Yeah.
0: Um, And the Weenie King was very funny, very creepy, of course, but I I thought he was amusing and funny. I also thought Rudy Valley's delivery was really good and I hated that I thought that because I know what a dick he was.
1: I thought he played the part like perfectly.
0: Yeah, him and Mary Astor were, in my opinion, are the two, they are what make this film.
1: I wouldn't put him, to be perfectly honest. She's top, she's number one. I would not put him in the same conversation as her.
0: They were just such good foils though.
1: I thought she really like ran away with the movie. She
0: did, but it's like having her opposite is great too. Like I love how, how off the wall she is, but then he, like, how are they siblings? Like she's so bohemian and she's so quick-witted and self-aware. He is not self-aware at all and pompous and like has a stick up his ass. They're like balancing each other on scales. So she is superior, of course, but I do think he's on the other side of that scale, balancing that out.
1: Once I was like, oh, he's just, he's Rockefeller. I sort of was like, okay, that's his shtick. She felt like somebody from like 2021 watching the movie, commenting on the movie while it was going on.
0: The line she had about Roosevelt killed me. I know I wrote yeah. it down somewhere. Uh, it was hilarious. And his lines about like, that's un-American. I just, he kept saying, that's un-American.
1: Uh, she says, I'd marry Captain McGlue tomorrow, even with that name, Hackensacker says, and divorce him the next month. And she says, nothing is permanent in this world, except for Roosevelt.
0: I love that line.
1: I love it. What, what do you think about, what do you think about, um, Our 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 main characters are named Tom and Jerry. I loved it,
0: I because I was like the mat that, that would have existed. Those would have been cartoon characters at this point.
1: Yeah, they, they kind of love it. Predated the film by two years. Yeah,
0: that had to be on purpose, don't you think?
1: I, yeah, I mean they're playing kind of a cat and mouse game.
0: Jerry is the mouse, isn't? And Tom's always the one getting crushed. Tom
1: cat, Tom cat.
0: So she's the mouse. He is chasing her. Daniel, yeah. that's brilliant. <gasps> I hadn't put that together. I just thought like Tom and Jerry, haha. But you're right. She's the mouse, and he's the cat that gets keeps getting pummeled. To follow her.
1: I think, that, yeah, I think that was probably on purpose.
0: Oh, also, this is just forever. There was a popover shout out. And every movie I've watched with Jamie Lynn Beatty has had popovers in it. So I was like, oh, popovers, Jamie Lynn Beatty.
1: Jamie Lynn, come and get your popovers.
0: And then, oh, that was the Prairie Oyster. We didn't say what it was for the people at home. But if a Prairie Oyster is disgusting and I looked it up and it's a drink made with raw egg and seasoning, Drunk as a cure for a hangover.
1: It's a hangover thing, yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: But that server brought them a very cute little tiny glass of brown something. Or looked brown because it's black and white. I I don't know. I've
1: always wanted to have one. They order them all the time in those old movies. Oh, Oh, I
0: thought you meant now they order them all the time. And I was like, who have you seen order a prairie oyster?
1: No, I've never seen anybody order a prairie oyster, but I'd like to try one at some point.
0: I guess I would. Just because I like to know what things are like. So I probably would.
1: I've never had like a raw egg.
0: I haven't. Well, they do have those rum drinks though that use the raw egg, but it's like frothy. So you forget that it's raw.
1: Yeah, it's different. Yeah.
0: Oh, and I, there was a quote that she had in the beginning about like, men don't get smarter as they age. They just lose their hair. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, that's funny. I liked it. So yeah, and then the fact that it ends with and they all lived happily ever after or did they, is just fantastic. It's so slightly cynical, but great. like, it's great.
1: First of all, Is Marriage Necessary is nowhere near as good of a title for this movie. It's a little too on the nose. But yeah, I mean, these people are probably going to continue to uh, to go through these periods of doubt. And if you've been courageous enough to literally flee your husband at one point, you'll you'll probably do it again when things get tough again. Or in the case of this movie, when things um, suddenly go well, you will flee. When you finally, she, like, he literally comes home and she's like, We can pay the rent now. It's all good. I got the clothes. I was like, Oh, yeah. damn. The movie's over already. It
0: was half an hour long.
1: But that's not what happens. So,
0: it is very interesting, though, just the format of the film in terms of like, the way it keeps them apart is so unique. We're not used to seeing that. You know what I mean? It's usually like two people fall in love. There are obstacles. They get married or it's like the one where they like, they get married, but it's just not working out. And there are very valid reasons why it's not working out, but they're going to be together in the end. That's, it was just so, I don't know. We're not used to seeing this.
1: When he sees the sausage King, isn't he like, I can't follow her. She took, she'd gone. She went, I can't afford a ticket to get down there. And he's like, oh, I'll just pay for it. And he's like, well, it's more than that. I didn't fill out the paperwork to get the stipend for the suit. So I'm not gonna be able to get, it's a a United flight. He says, well, don't worry. There is a workaround. If you call this number, they will send you the $200 stipend and you can go pick up the suit. So that he goes and he gets the suit and then he, he flies.
0: What you've just done is revitalized the suit and dress up business because they'll have them right next to airports now too. So that's just jobs that you've just
1: created. I am a job creator. And I think that this is a really, really good idea. And I think you're going to see more and more people coming on board with it. I think, let me put it this way. I think like 60 years from now, people are going to look back and say, wow, that idea was ahead of its time.
0: I think you might be right about that one. Or will you? We're going to do the double feature portion. I would say, obviously, a Preston Sturges marathon of everything he did from like 1940 to 1945 would totally work plus Unfaithfully Yours from 1948. So that would be like The Lady Eve, Unfaithfully Yours, I said, Miracle Morgan's Creek, Sullivan's Travels, all those. Yes, yes. Oh, and then, I mean, I haven't seen Hail the Conquering Hero, but that's also supposed to be fantastic. Okay, there's that. Uh, I would also recommend watching The Awful Truth, which is a comedy about divorce as well from 1937 with Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. That would probably pair pretty well with this midnight is another movie. I think I would pair this with another screwball comedy from the 30s starring Claudette Colbert as a woman who's just kind of like passing through, looks really nice, has no money on her and people are really kind to her and help her along the way. That's it's another one of those. Um, and then it happened one night would probably be my last, uh, double feature with this 1934, like the original rom-com Frank Capra. It's smart. It's funny. It's over the top ridiculous. Yeah, those would be my double features. Do you have anything that you want to add, Daniel? Besides Venom, obviously.
1: From 1992, Tom and Jerry, the movie. Now, don't be taken aback. They do speak in this film, which they don't do in anything else. I don't think there's a single other one where they speak, but they do speak in this. And when you see the movie, you'll understand.
0: Anchors Away, Jerry Speaks. In Anchors, Anchors Away, Away it with Gene Kelly. Jerry the Mouse does speak to Gene Kelly when they are dancing together.
1: Okay. Well, then the only other time that they spoke was in Anchors Away with Gene Kelly. But in this movie, they speak throughout the entire film. They learn that they've been able to speak. They just uh, chose not to speak to each other. And other sort of magical things happen throughout the movie. But I think you'll see a strong influence from the movie we just talked about, whatever it's called. I've forgotten the name. In... The Palm
0: Beach Story, which is also not a good name. It's very forgettable.
1: No, it's not a good name. And it doesn't really describe what happens in this movie. But again, feels like a sign of the times. Of Just like sometimes movies would just have titles like The Gray Man Wears a Hat. And it's just like about like three people who go on a hike or something. And you're like, why'd they call it? It's just like, I don't know. Well, he wore a hat. That's just what they did. That's yeah. That's like how they named movies back then.
0: Wait, can I ask you? What would you have named this? Like Mad Cap Money or something oh. like that. Uh, well what about money isn't everything
1: what about <laughs> something like um, the longest separation I, or, or I, I'm trying to think of something like uh, meet me in Palm Beach
0: oh that, that's pretty good that's
1: pretty good the Palm Beach story makes it sound like it's going to be about like two people who like moved to Palm Beach and open up a B&B. It
0: sounds serious. If you know that Palm Beach is a place where people get divorced, you're like, oh, this is going to be a drama about divorce. You're not like screwball comedy for days.
1: Yeah. Again, no one cared. They wanted to call it is marriage necessary, which is just like a terrible name for a movie. The fact that he was like, this is what I want it to be. They're probably like, you can't call it that. And he's like, how does this violate the Hays Code? And they're like, it doesn't violate the Hays Code. It's just a bad name for a movie.
0: I know what it should have been called. It should have been called They Lived Happily Ever After. Or did they? That's what it should have been called.
1: It's not bad, sir, but it's a little long. I mean, remember, you want this to fit on a- Damn
0: it, you're right. Oh, on, a on a On a marquee. What if it's just, or did they?
1: What if they called it Twins?
0: But twins, exclamation point, so as not to obviously be confused with the late great twins of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. Right.
1: Okay, so so Preston Sergis has an idea in 1942. I want to call the movie Twins, right? But he kind of knows where the future's going.
0: He sees the future. We've established this. He knows what the future trends will be.
1: There's going to be a movie down the road, and you know what? That movie should really be called Twins. I'll put an exclamation point at the end of this. And then he did. And then he did. Wait, it should have been called magloo Yeah, I think Meet Me in Palm Beach is pretty good. I think that's the best one
0: we've come up with so far. Yeah. Well, everybody, we had a great time. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Daniel Strauss. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on Anchor.fm and become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to
1: find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.